ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. What I'd like to have right now... Where the big boys play. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. Hello, everyone. This is where the big boys play. Here for our third episode. Um, I'm here with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? I'm doing great. Uh, you, you've just come. Uh, you've just come back from a family trip. So thanks for uh, being able to to make it tonight. Yeah, nice to have a little vacation. So. Um, we are taking a little uh, detour from uh, our route through um, the NWA pay-per-views, and we're actually going backwards. <laughs> so, um, Starcade '84 is going to be next time. Tonight, we're going to be looking at NWA Final Conflict, um, and this needs a little bit of uh, explanation. It's not actually a pay-per-view show. Um, it was just a kind of big. I guess a big live show in Greensboro, in the Greensboro Coliseum. Um, and I guess up to that date, it was one of the NWA's biggest gates. Is that, is that right, Chad? Would you yeah, I know most of the uh, historians for the Mid-Atlantic and NWA area, such as Bruce Mitchell, talk really fondly of this show. And uh, the tagline is always that there was thousands of seats of people that were turned away uh, that wanted to get into the show but couldn't. And, uh, you know, you could see from the footage we had that the place was absolutely packed all the way up to the last row. Um, so it just seemed like a big, big event for uh, Jim Crockett Promotions. And I guess before the pay-per-view era, this was really what it was about. This was kind of like basically a super card, a big live show. Um, and this was kind of as big as it got before the Starcades and the WrestleManias. I should explain that this is not uh, this is not a VHS. This was never released anywhere. We have this footage courtesy of Jim Nelson, um, also known as Boris Zukov, um, who basically had the raw, the raw tapes, and he made them available uh, some time ago. And this is how we have footage of this show. So thank you, Boris. <laughs> <laughs> this also means that the presentation here is kind of strange. It's a little bit unpolished. Things start off without any commentators presenting. Uh, you know, there's no announced team. There's no kind of formal start. We're, we're just treated to Dr. Tom Miller in the center of the ring right at the start before the U.S. National Anthem comes in. I mean, what was the occasion of this final conflict? As, as I understand it, there was a big, long feud between... Sergeant Slaughter and um, what's his name again? Don Knoedel. Yeah, Don Knoedel and uh, Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamboat, and they've been feuding for some time, and it was all going to cul culminate here in a big cage match. Yeah, this just seemed like a kind of localized angle that had really caught fire. And uh, this was presented as the blow-off to that feud with all the stipulations and the cage match stipulations. So it just seemed like something that, for whatever reason in the area, that it really captured the imagination of the patrons. And that's why they showed up in full force. Obviously, I've been reading around this because uh, there's not a huge amount of information available on this show. But from what I've read, 
this was this is kind of seen as being quite innovative as well. You know, a big long angle leading off to a big blow off and a big show. Um, it's kind of you know quite modern in the way that in the way that it was booked in the way that it was the way that it was promoted. I mean, obviously, there's always been feuds and things, but I, I think that this was this was seen as being something reasonably new. Yeah, I'd be interested to see how much footage exists uh, previous to this because I personally have not seen anything uh, as far as the build-up to this match. Yeah, th- th- there are a couple of um, kind of old VHSs again from uh, Boris Zukov, Jim Nelson. Um, right. Uh, there's something called the Road to Greensboro. Yeah, I saw the, I saw the listing for that, but I'd never seen that tape when I was doing some research. Yeah, that's that's what I saw. And I should mention that uh, we're basically doing this show because it was uh, suggested to us by a chap called Al on the uh, Pro Wrestling Only board. So he said we should take a look at this. And given that we're not too far away from 1983, and I was quite interested to see you know what another show around this time would have looked like, I thought it'd be an interesting thing to do. And uh, certainly on this card, there's a whole ton of guys that I have never seen before and likely we're not going to see again. So, quite interesting to see this. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you now stand for the playing of our national anthem. We come out with the national anthem and the first match is Ken Timms versus Jerry Briscoe. I was surprised that Briscoe was the face here. He was getting quite quite a loud pop. From the crowd and Ken Timms was the heel. I've never seen Ken Timms before so I assumed he was a jobber but apparently not. I also have never seen him before uh, so he was new to me too. He seemed sort of like a generic heel. Just kind of workman type heel. Yeah so I mean he, he, he seemed more like a lower mid card or even a mid card but you know just judging from the way that this match was booked he definitely got some offense in here. It wasn't a squash. And the ref is Tommy Young, and I noticed he got some uh, significant heel heat there. He got booed, <laughs> which is, uh, I guess, an old tradition of booing refs at live shows. Yeah, I don't know why uh, Tommy get, was booed here. I know later on when he started shoving down Flair and what have you that he got a pretty good face reaction. But uh, this was the case in all the referees announced tonight. They got a pretty good uh, boovation from the crowd except for Sandy Scott. <laughs> Um, and our announcer is Bob Coddle on his own to start off with, um, and he kind of comes midway through this match. I actually thought, I, when this started out, I actually thought that we weren't going to get any announcing, but uh, Coddle kind of comes in. And, you know, we get some decent offense from Ken, Ken Timms here, um, some mat work, and uh, Briscoe gives us a nice double underarm suplex, um, but this is a pretty short match. Just uh, Yeah, they had kind of a... A little amateur wrestling start where they were exchanging and what have you, and then Tim started working over Briscoe's arm uh, for a little bit and mixed in some fairly basic stuff, and then that only lasted for about one or two minutes, and Briscoe gained the advantage at a double underhook suplex, locked in the figure four, and got the victory. It was around five minutes from start to finish and not much to it. I mean, it was interesting to see what Briscoe would be like. This is obviously a match where he was going over, and you knew it before it started. But it was interesting to see that there was still that amateur kind of mat work, even within that five-minute time frame. And it was always interesting to see what a guy is like in a context like that. Um, yeah, and I thought, I thought he was a pretty good face here, too. Uh, I know with almost all the footage I've seen of him, he's either uh, played it 
fairly straight as far as his matches in Japan or he's been a heel. So to kind of see him show a little fire as a babyface here was intriguing. Um, I, I got a little note. Uh, post-match, we get some awesome, because um, the figure four is the finish, and um, after the match, Ken Timms carries on selling the leg as he's walking out, and I thought that was great. <laughs> I did notice that. That was really good. He was limping uh, going back to the dressing room, which is a nice little touch because... Again, you know, this was a show that wasn't meant for widespread consumption. Um, so for him to carry on like that, even after the spotlight was necessarily off him, was very well done. I, I was wondering, this, did, did this actually go out on TV? or the, That's, the that's, what, I could that's what I was wondering, because, I mean, you had the commentary, but like you say and what we'll get into, you had some sort of production notes and cues. Um, being talked about and whatnot, so I don't know if they were filming this to show clips, yeah. uh, kind of like how they did in Memphis, where they'd show the studio footage, or if it was meant to be a full-fledged release or what. I kind of figured that this would have been shown on World Championship Wrestling, like individual matches, or um, uh, what's the other show they had worldwide? Right, that's that's kind of the impression I got. So yeah, they may show individual matches, but not the whole. The whole car was never shown in this form, right? So, so the next match we have is Rick Harris versus uh, a very young Mike Rotundo. Yeah, Mike Rotundo. Rotundo is the face. He's kind of in U.S. Express mode. Well, not even that. Even he's kind of um, in young, kind of amateur varsity mode here. I'd say. Yeah. Again, as interesting as it was to see. Uh, Briscoe as a face. It was also interesting to see Rotundo as a face because I'd seen some of his U.S. Express run, uh, but I mostly associate him as IRS. That was the character he was portraying in my childhood. So to see him kind of come out as a spunky baby face in colorful tights and kind of a wild haircut was very interesting to see. And uh, Rick Harris here, who's playing the heel, he goes on to be Black Bart fairly soon after. In fact, by Stark at 84, he's already Black Bart. Here he is kind of more in kind of, I guess this is early in his career. He's almost in enhancement talent. I, I'd have thought Rick Harris at this point. And just before this match starts, Tom Miller um, shills this Easter show <laughs> that he keeps on going back to. <laughs> Where the Briscoes are facing Dory uh, Funk Jr. and Paul Jones. That's the big match there. So I guess Paul Jones at this point had not yet become a manager. Right. It it seemed like he still was either not a full fledged manager, or uh, I don't know if he was managing some and wrestling some, or he had not even managed at all at this time. But yeah, he was. That was one of the two feature matchups they mentioned. So. Yeah, so for the Easter card. Just, uh, just on the subject of uh, Tom Miller, what do you think of him as a ring announcer? Because uh, I, I was quite impressed with him during the show. Yeah, I kind of, I, I've always liked his uh, voice. It's definitely a distinctive sound when you hear him sort of shout the ladies and gentlemen. That's kind of an iconic uh, for long-term wrestling fans, you know, you recognize that immediately. And I think he does a good job of, uh, especially when he announces all the contestants for the six-man tag on that Easter show, really kind of building up until you 
get to Andre the Giant as the big person coming in. And uh, he really showed some enthusiasm, but also some professionalism. So I think he does a good job as a ring announcer. And he sticks around for what? Like, I think he's still around in, by 87. Um, but I guess by the time of the Turner takeover, he's gone. Miller, right? Um, yeah, I, I don't know if they transitioned straight from him to Capetta. Uh, that'll be something interesting to see because I can't remember anybody really bridging to. Yeah, uh, they might have been, but it literally goes Miller, Capetta, Michael Buffer for, for as far as right, I, as far right. As I know. Um, yeah, it, it will be interesting to see uh, who does those eighty-eight, eighty-nine shows. Yeah, that was kind of the area where I don't remember. I kind of remember Miller maybe around the first clash though, so that's nineteen eighty-eight. But I don't know any beyond that. I don't know when Capetta started coming in. Capetta at this time was a WF guy. He was kind of like a number two behind the Fink. Um, right. Although I, he never makes any major shows. Like, but I think he does, you know, house shows and things like that. Yeah, I've, I've seen him on some Spectrum, Philly Spectrum footage, which is really interesting to see. Uh, he he looks really baby-faced <laughs> when he's announcing there. Uh, all right, so as this match starts... Um, Coddle says that um, Harris has the height and weight advantage here, um, but then he says that Mike Rotundo is six foot five. The big man is so tall, about six foot six or seven, at two hundred sixty-five pounds, is such a big individual. He's got a little height and leverage advantage on Rotundo, even though Rotundo himself goes well over six feet, six five or so. <laughs> yeah, I, this was this was one of those uh, exaggerations that was. Pretty humorous because we hear first that Black Bart is around six seven or six eight, and then we hear that Mike Rotundo is around six five, which I think was being generous by about three or four inches in both cases. Yeah, I immediately went and had a look because there's no way that uh, Rotundo is six five. He's actually six three, which is oh okay. Um, obviously I. I think in general wrestlers are bigger than we think of. Like we always think of, um, like I think of Rotundo as a smaller guy. But obviously, if he was standing next to me or you, he'd be pretty big, right? Yeah, I mean that seems. I know back in this time, I can remember when I went to shows as a kid. Of course, they looked really bigger and larger than life. And I know wrestlers have gotten significantly smaller over the years but for instance i went to the ring of honor show uh at wrestlemania weekend last year in atlanta and i was just astounded at how small uh some of the competitors were for instance kyle o'reilly yeah. he m- might be five six five seven because i'm, I'm six one and i towered over <laughs> him and adam cole and a couple of the other wrestlers so i don't know if it's just everybody's gotten smaller uh, convinced, I would kind of like to stand toe to toe with some of the people back in the day to see how they really do measure up height wise. I reckon all of these ROH guys probably grew up with Dean Malenko as a hero, so they thought they could become wrestlers. I guess so, because it, <laughs> it, he looked like somebody that you could sort of fit in your pocket and take him out with you. Um, so in this match we get kind of a bunch of not nothing offense from uh, Rick Harris punches, snap pair, headlock, slam, a leg drop. Uh, it's, it's all Harris uh, to start off with, and then out of nowhere Rotunda gets an airplane spin and and the match is over. 
Yeah, there was nothing to this also. Uh, you didn't get kind of some of the neat amateur wrestling that the first match gave you. Rotunda, one time, he did use some flash moves, like he dropped to the mat and hit Harris with his two feet to kind of flip him off his feet. And uh, But uh, most of Harris's offense was just a powerhouse heel forearm shots, some power moves. Uh, the leg drop looked nice, but Rotundo getting the advantage with the airplane spin really came out of nowhere, and then he pinned him. So, so after the match, um, Miller shields this Easter show again, and he, uh, yeah. he announces this big six-man tag, Greg Valentine, one-man gang, and Oliver Humperdinck, surprisingly, against, <laughs> against our favorite, Bugsy McGraw. <laughs> Jimmy Boogie Woogie Man, uh, who gets a massive pop from the crowd. and then, Yeah, yeah, Boogie Woogie Man, he got a big pop from the crowd when they announced him. And then Miller goes absolutely crazy when he announces Andre, Andre the Giant, and the crowd go wild. Fans, again, a reminder about that super wrestling spectacular coming right here to the Greensboro Coliseum on Easter Sunday, April the 3rd at 7.30 p.m. On that Super Wrestling card, a special six-man tag team match will pit Greg Valentine, the one-man gang, and Sir Oliver Humperdinck against Bugsy McGraw, Jimmy Boogie Woogie Valiant, and Andre the Giant! Yeah, I kind of have a perverse desire to see that six-man. Uh, just seems like such a random assortment of really big stars that you can't really think of another time in history where they'd all be in the same place together. Well, with Bugsy McGraw, One Man Gang, and Jimmy Valiant, that's going to be a work rate <laughs> classic, that one. Humperdinck, <laughs> uh, too. Don't forget him. <laughs> I, don't I, I didn't even know, know Humperdinck ever wrestled, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a match from him, and I don't know what he was looking like physique-wise in 1983, but if it was anything close to his Bam Bam Bigelow managerial days, I kind of showed her the thought. Just on the subject of Humperdinck, just to go off on a slight tangent here, I have never understood the deal of a face manager. I've never understood, <laughs> like, I never got the point of him. Yeah, I can't think of too many offhand. I don't know, and really in NWA and WCW especially, I can't think of hardly any that were face managers besides some Teddy Long. Um, uh, would Johnny be bad? Yeah, I, in and, history, it's probably Paul Bearer. And um, who was that um, guy who came in with the Row Warriors during their... Uh, oh, Paul Ellering. Yeah, yeah now that when that he, would be an example. When he had the puppet there at SummerSlam, SummerSlam uh, 92. <laughs> Again, totally point... Like, I, I, the, for me, the whole deal of a manager is that they are there to cheat. So there's no there's no point of, uh, of having a face one. Miss Elizabeth, of course, is the bigger exception. Right. Yeah, I know I've seen Arnold Scotland uh, help with Bob Backlund. He was the manager for Bob Backlund, and he essentially, in a lot of the Backlund WWF title defenses I've seen, he would actually literally put up a chair right next to ringside and sit in the chair, and that was all he would do. He would come out with him, wave to the crowd when he got announced, sit in the chair for the whole match, and then walk right back. So he served no purpose. 
well, he, he did have one very famous moment in history where he threw in the towel. That was that was the only time I can ever recollect him doing anything in the five year run that I've seen of uh, Backlund's title run. Scarlet was a big um, uh, yeah, Vince yeah. this guy, right? I don't think they just gave him that role because he wanted to. Uh, I know he was one of Vince Seniors and then a little bit of Vince Junior's main backstage men, uh, kind of along with Gorilla Monsoon, but just always seemed strange to me because he would honestly just sit in a chair and just look kind of sternly on at the action. Uh, so it was bizarre. But anyway, <laughs> he um, I just pulled up uh, Scarlet because I was interested to see how long Scarlet uh, stuck around, and uh, apparently he appeared in the video for Pile Driver. <laughs> oh really? By uh, by Coco Beware. So he was at, at least around as late as 1987, and then he was into the um, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1994. So like, yeah, <laughs> I'm watching the 1994 yearbook set, and he actually comes out on Raw. In uh, late 1994, to apologize to Backlund for uh, throwing <laughs> into the towel and ex- and to uh, explain his actions, and Backlund has just started his snapping gimmick, and he snaps and puts him in the chicken wing, and Sparky Plug of all people comes out to try to save Scotland, but it's it's a really Great angle, actually, but and Scotland looked pretty good. I mean, this was late 1994. I was sort of surprised. I'm just thinking as if a single person in that raw crowd in 1994 cared about the uh, Scotland backland uh, <laughs> business back in '84. That was some long-term <laughs> history they were revisiting. I cannot imagine somebody today coming out on Raw and uh, talking about an angle that happened in 2002 and wanting some justification for it. <laughs> All right, so our third match here is uh, Gene Anderson and Red Dog Lane. Oh. This is uh, Jim Nelson, a.k.a. Boris Zukov, who we have to thank for this footage, um, and Johnny Weaver. Um, and the angle here, actually, um, is that Jim Nelson was part of Sergeant Slaughter's kind of... Um, Sergeant Slaughter made this claim that he could basically take any two random guys and train them up as privates. Um, and he took Jim Nelson and Don uh, Canodal, and he and he made, they were both privates. And then at some point, Nelson turned on Slaughter, and he became a face. So that was the kind of angle leading into this. Gene Anderson here looks really old. Yeah, I made that exact note. He looked decrepit. He's got a big tummy, and he's. Uh, I checked. I worked it out. He's. Fi- he would be fifty at this show. Oh really? Oh. So that explains it. Um. Yeah. But how old? When was Ric Flair? Fifty. Probably about ten years ago. Uh, I would. I would guess probably two thousand two, something around there. We start off with my least favorite start to any match: the test of strength. I hate the test of strength. Um. Obviously, it's a staple of uh, 80s wrestling, and you know many, many matches started with this. But uh, a, a match involving these four guys, I don't understand what Test of Strength is doing anywhere near this match. Um, and uh, I've just got the word hate written in big letters on my notes. Uh, and really, not a lot happens in this match until uh, Nelson comes in uh, with a hot tag. 
and he does about 50, 50 slams. Um, <laughs> and I've said that even if Nelson looks a bit green here, he actually looks okay in this match, surprisingly. Like, better than he would ever look as... I mean, Borzukov was basically a jobber, and I've never seen his AWA stuff, but his stuff with the Bolsheviks never looks good to me. And uh, Jim Nelson in this match looked better than I've ever seen him. Yeah, uh, the test of strength here was sort of puzzling. I can kind of understand justifying it if you have two big powerhouses, for instance. I've always enjoyed the Hogan Warrior test of strength uh, as kind of a, a two big powerhouses going at it and colliding. But here you had just four in decent shape wrestlers that did a test of strength for around two to three minutes of a seven minute match of sort of reminded me of the nerve hold and the Kabuki uh, Charlie Brown match we watched in Starcade where, I mean, you have such a short match anyway, and to just fill it with this filler test of strength is really unforgivable. Weaver also, I mean, he looked, decent i would say in the starcade match we watched and here he tried to mix in some comedy with kind of the headbutt he sort of charged at red dog lane like a dog and red dog retreated to the outside and kind of a little comedy spot but other than that he did not show me much here um so i was kind of disappointed in that and um i mean gene anderson obviously a big name yeah uh, uh, this this really seemed like the end of the road uh, um, for him. Why is he looking for partners? That like who the hell is Red like Red Dog Lane is really. <laughs> obs- I spent a while um, trying to find any information about this guy, and I've got um, I've got Total Extreme Wrestling 2008, and um, I've got the Death of the Territories mod on there, and it has never ceased to amaze me how thorough that database is. And literally the most information I could find on on Red Dog Lane was it was in was in that database. Um, and yeah, I mean he was just a kind of regional wrestler around this time. I don't think he ever kind of did anything of note. Um, but I'm just wondering where Gene Anderson is looking for partners. I mean, one of the best tag wrestlers of all time. Can't find a better. Yeah, this this is a weird pairing. I mean, this match definitely seemed like a showcase for Nelson. No, absolutely. He was a featured uh, wrestler, without doubt. I'm sorry, do what? I said he was the featured wrestler, without doubt. Yeah, Jim, Jim yeah. yeah he, it definitely seemed like a showcase for him. Uh, thought maybe we'd see a little more interaction with him and Gene Anderson, uh, but not a lot there, and then he ended up rolling up Lane, so I guess they just used him there to take the pinfall, but... It, it is a strange pairing for him to be with one of the greatest tag wrestlers uh, to history at that point. I mean, why not do this as a singles match? I mean, if, if, if the sole purpose of this match is to put Jim Nelson over, why not just have Jim Nelson versus Red Dog Lane? Job a squash. That's probably wouldn't have been a bad idea. Because uh, what we had here, Weaver was pretty much a non-factor, and Anderson looked just really old. He did not look like a legend or no. nothing at all. He just looked old and kind of out of place. And I, I, I think that is something to to think about. The way I mean, in this day, in, in at this point in 1983, that that was kind of it for an old wrestler. You know, they'd wrestled as 
I've, I've often thought about this about Ric Flair, where people say, you know, he should really retire, like, you know, it's time, and obviously Ric Flair should retire now. Um, but I also think that the whole generation of wrestlers that he grew up with all wrestled into well into their 50s, because what else did they have to do? They probably didn't make enough to have a really decent pension, so they just have to keep on going. And as long as they had a name value, they still had to wrestle. And it, and it, it wasn't like back in the days of NWA that, um, you know, back in these days, I don't think they, you know, they didn't talk people up as legends or anything. People just got old and progressively, you know, worked their way down the card until they became, you know, well, what we see Gene Anderson being here. Yeah, I mean, they, I, I would compare the way Anderson looked here to kind of how, like, the assassin looked in Starcade. I mean, the assassin in that match, he looked... Uh, very out of shape and kind of just hanging on to past glory dates. And I know he sort of transitioned into a managerial role and developing talent and whatnot training. But uh, that is interesting because I would not, I guess Gene maybe does have nothing else to fall back on. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess another way of looking at it is that a lot of the wrestlers of the of the 80s, you know, of, say, the generation of um, Hogan and, you know, DBRC and Warrior and all those guys, they probably have, um, you know, they're very fortunate to have the WE round calling them legends and, you know, making sure their product lines are still going and bringing out DVDs and talking up, you know, talking them up as legends, because I guess, you know, the old 70s stars never had that. Yeah, I don't recall any mention by Cottle about Anderson's past history in this match. He may have, but it didn't resonate enough for me to make a note on it, so it must have not been too extended if he did mention it. So, we go from this match, um, and uh, the faces went over there, right? Jim Nelson got the pin. Yes, yeah, yeah, Nelson just rolled up uh, Lane and got the pin in seven minutes. So now we go into an into an interesting little bit where we hear Cardle off mic um, asking the producer to let him know when David Crockett turns up. Okay, yeah, I'll let you know if he comes down. I'll just say, uh, you know, coming in with me now at ringside, uh, David or David Crockett or something. Okay. And then, hey, can you then tell me in the headset say okay, and let me know that his mic is open when you open it. Good. <laughs> and he says, "Can you let me know when he uh, when he gets here?" Okay, <laughs> which is kind of interesting because in the next match, uh, David just sort of arises out of nowhere. He <laughs> kind of hops into the booth and just starts. I, the way Cottle was talking here, you thought you might get an introduction or kind of a segment where he introduces David, but no. In the next match, when David arrives, he just sort of picks up a headset and starts going to town. Yeah, I I haven't missed it because I was I was trying to listen out for when uh, he'd come in, but it just kind of happened. And I yeah, <laughs> so yeah, Cottle Cottle just says David Crockett's in the booth, and then David's going you know eighty miles an hour talking about the match. So Tom Miller shows this Easter show again. And, yes, um, the crowd pops for Andre again, and um, I really want to watch this Easter show, and I can't find it anywhere. So. I do. It it does sound like, especially that six man, and I thought it was interesting that he they took an intermission right here, which I the, all the information I can find on this card was that the 
five matches that we see plus the Valentine Flair match was the entire card. So we've had three matches. One went five minutes, one went about five and a half minutes, and then the tag match went seven minutes. So you take an intermission after like 30 minutes of action, uh, which I thought was real bizarre. It's kind of an eye-opener to see what, like, just a general, you know, this, this was a big show at this time, and it's still kind of like, you know, there's a lot of nothing matches on the card. So yeah, like, I mean, these three sort of were showcases for some individuals, and you sort of had, you know, Jerry Briscoe gets a little showcase, Mike Rotundo's an up-and-comer, and spunky baby face and then Jim Nelson so you could kind of see what their intentions were with each of the matches but they really weren't too all competitive and sort of seemed like your standard superstars squash matches in a lot of ways yeah they wouldn't look out of place on an MSG house show or or even or even just like a a generic superstars match something like that exactly um so anyway, Playboy Gary Hart is out, um, and this was a really weird moment. He calls out Dick Slater, who he manages, but he calls him out in such a way that, like, I thought he was calling him out. I thought that Gary Hart was against Dick Slater here, but he isn't. Dicky Slater, bring it on down, baby! Bring it on down, Richard, let's go! Slater's the heel, and he's here to face uh, Roddy Piper for the TV title. Yeah, I was a little bit confused by this star. It was just a bit weird. Like, I didn't really understand what was going on. It maybe Yeah, I mean, Gary kind of comes out and he's yelling, come on out, Richard, which I thought it was funny. I'd never heard Dick Slater called Richard, and it was kind of nonchalant. And one thing I wanted to talk about is uh, Gary Hart is known as Playboy Gary Hart, which... I don't understand, based on his demeanor and what we see of him, how he got the Playboy nickname. It seems like kind of one of the most misplaced uh, nicknames in wrestling that I could think of, that he would be considered Playboy Gary Hart. Uh, The only other one I could think of right offhand was Beautiful Bobby uh, Eaton, which, of course, I don't think anybody could say that Bobby Eaton was a beautiful man, but no, this too. You're absolutely right, Playboy Gary Hart. Um, yeah, it just seems. I mean, because he doesn't have a demeanor of a playboy. Uh, I mean, I mean, of course, when I picture Playboy, I think of Hugh Hefner. Uh, kind of get that image in my head, but Gary Hart's about as far from that as possible. With kind of in both. Uh, shows we've seen him in, he's sort of been wearing a dark colored suit and a kind of grim demeanor with his bald head. He's very cerebral. Like he'd probably be like if he was called the Brain Gary Hart or something like that. That would make more sense to me. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, or even just I, I, I have no idea. Just Playboy does not fit. I don't know if there's a backstory from the seventies uh, or from his wrestling days. Did, didn't um, Buddy Rose also go by that name, Playboy Buddy Rose? Yes, now that that is a good point. Uh, but at least with Buddy, even though he was certainly not a uh, Adonis-looking man uh, as far as his physique, he did he, kind he of present himself with a Playboy image with the robes yeah. and sort of the flamboyance. 
so I can sort of see that more than here, even though the looks didn't match up to the nickname. Okay, okay. So we get a lot of. Uh, I, I've got a note here. Great headband for Dick Slater. He's <laughs> yeah. And uh, Dick was getting some great heat coming out of yeah. the crowd. He he did a long walk around the whole ring, and you had the people shouting at him and pointing at him. He was getting some great heat. Uh, I'm really, I'm surprised that Dick Slater is not um, didn't have a bad career. Like I I know he had a pretty decent career, but like he could have been a lot bigger than he was. Dick Slater. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he sort of just got. Lost in the shuffle, kind of being in Florida predominantly, but I I would have loved to have seen him, for instance, challenge Hogan around this time, and I think he could have done some great work with Hogan in 84 and 85, uh, just using his size and his agility uh, to kind of bounce around for that. Yeah, I'm kind of uh, wondering what happened, because, I mean, he was great on... Every match I saw him on the All Japan set, yeah, around 80, 81, 82, he was great. He's been impressive every time I've seen him so far. Um, you know, going through the, these NWA shows, and he he did actually go to WF um, in eighty six, eighty seven. I've just pulled it up here, and um, he had a match with uh, Jake Roberts as a Southern Rebel gimmick he was given. Um, I wonder if that's any good. I know his matches, I've seen some of his stuff in Mid-South. Have you ever seen his stuff in Mid-South? He was very good in that also. Yeah, I, I've seen a few of, uh, in fact, around the time that I stopped watching that Mid-South set, 85. Yeah. Um, I, I watched a couple of Slater matches. Yeah, I'm, but I'm, Slater's a guy I want to see a lot more of in general. But I, it's just strange how he never, because um, I watched quite a bit of uh, early 90s WCW and he crops up there. Um, yeah, yeah, I know he's sort of teaming with Bunkhouse Buck even in, what is that, like 1995. Yeah, they get the tag titles under Colonel Parker. Um, right. But he's a like, completely different shape by that point. Different yes, style, like yeah. A much more of a brawler than a, this, I mean, at this point he's much more technical. Uh, you know, he's just quite smooth, scientific heel. Um... I mean, he st- he still does some of the Terry Funk moves, but uh, it, as far as the style of match he, he works, he, he's pretty much a technical heel in my book. Yeah, with this match, it started out where actually uh, Slater was kind of being held back by uh, Gary Hart, and then he shrugged him off, which got a pop from the crowd, and Slater had this towel that he wrapped around Piper and... Piper sort of slung out of the towel and then wrapped it around Slater, which got a another uh, great big pop from the crowd. And it was at this point that David jumped in on the commentary team. And yeah. uh, I, I, I just <laughs> go ahead. I, I've just got a note here. Crockett just adds noise and excitement and energy. And uh, he's just a total loon. <laughs> yeah, I, kn- I know we talked about Crockett last show and we were kind of disappointed that it didn't seem like he'd be popping up on any of the shows going forward they were reviewing so this was a nice treat uh to get him here because in this match he was really good and in the main event which we'll get to i thought he was fantastic and really added a lot to that match whips him across into the ropes oh he tried for the fifth the cut back hard right 
Ronnie Piper ducked right under that blow, and he's landed a couple of buttes. Now Buck Fist slinging it out. Slayer now running. Goes, goes over the top well, one thing, getting back to this match that I really liked was Slater, uh, in the early going, he sort of jumped over the top rope and exited through the crowd, retreating, and that kind of was interesting because then they claimed that Piper threw him over the top rope, so that I thought was a pretty good spot that was interesting. And then Fargo did, actually, the Tommy Young two. Ric Flair spot where Gary Hart was arguing on the apron and Sonny Fargo shoved him down. So he was taking some punishment this match, Gary Hart. I, I got a note here just saying that Slater was an awesome cowardly heel. Like he seemed to be able to do it all. Like he can he can brawl, he can uh, do your technical moves, and he can also do this kind of Memphis stuff where he's begging off and you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I I really like I, like he's a revelation for me, Slater. Like he. He seems to be a, t- a total package as a heel. Action's a little slow here, I thought. Pigarelorus strikes, and in many ways this is a typical Piper. Very scrappy, very kind of like stop-start, a lot of stalling, um, work in the crowd. Yeah, when Slater would get the advantage, um, one thing one thing about this match that I, I really I liked this match. I thought it was a good match, but it did drag out too long it was uh, 17 minutes and there was a lot of kind of rinse and repeat where they'd be going toe-to-toe and brawling with good shots or some kind of nasty headbutts actually but then Piper would just overcome Slater take over the advantage and take him down for a second or two and then we'd sort of get back up and redo it all over again so that got repetitive towards the end uh, I thought Slater did a pretty good job. I, th- I think the thing with Piper's offense is uh, to take it, you kind of have to match his intensity and, like you said, scrappiness. That was a very good adjective to describe the way he kind of brawls. And I thought Slater did pretty good here uh, by doing that and also trying to take some big bumps uh, off of Piper. But Piper does a quite a nasty... Uh I've got it written here as a nose twist stomp. <laughs> yes, yes, that looked kind of brutal where he took the bottom of his boot and scraped it across Slater's nose and mouth, which I've, you know, I've seen numerous times, but here it actually looked like it was hurt or sometimes you see it where it looks like somebody's trying to do like a spin move on the person's forehead. Here it actually looked like he sort of grinded Slater's nose. Uh, we'll actually see that spot again in a Slater match uh, at Starcade 84. And uh, I've just realized that Slater does that move. So maybe he picked it up from... <laughs> maybe he yeah, he also... Uh, I know he did his kind of trademark trying to fly into the corner spot, which he does in a lot of his matches here. That was another kind of trademark Slater spot that he mixed in. Um. Piper actually surprised me with some of his offense here. He hits a suplex, and he does—he actually does a Rick Rude-style neckbreaker. Yeah, that looked awesome. Yeah. That looked very good. Really good. And, um, yeah, I mean, Piper Piper can turn it on um, on occasion. Like, there's famously, there's the Bret Hart match, of course. But, like, he can, like, it's not like he's a total brawler. He can do moves if required. Yeah, I've seen some of uh, Piper in Portland in the early 80s, and 
uh, to me, what we've seen so far from his two matches here in Mid-Atlantic and NWA, it looks, it's kind of the same type mold where he really, he does need somebody to match him to where if you're, if he's just dominating, it can be sort of out of control and helter skelter. But as long as somebody is there to match him or rein him in, it really produces a great match because he brings the intensity. He can mix up some wrestling or some impressive maneuvers like the reverse net breaker we saw here. Uh, he just needs somebody else to kind of take him along for the ride also. So Gary Hart is a constant distraction for the ref. Yeah, this, I, I, this it sort of plays into the ending of the match, but for a while here I thought Gary was a pretty big distraction in this match as far as just he had to jump up on the apron probably 10 times and it was with no consequence. Piper was ignoring him. Slater wasn't able to gain any sort of advantage by him doing that. We just had Fargo sort of admonishing him and then that was it. And that kind of also got into the rinse and repeat repetitive nature uh, that drug this match down a little bit. Yeah, so I, I really like the, um, I guess you call it the stretch sequence when Slate was in control, gives him a gut wrench suplex and a yeah, head Yeah, that was a nice suplex. Uh, really nice elbow drop. Like, Slate is really smooth, everything he does. Um, but then when Piper gets back in control, um, he gets a pin, Hart distracts him, and then Slater goes down for an absolute age, and all he, all Piper gives him is a diving fist, and like, Slater's out, like, out for the count. I don't really understand this finish. Um, and Piper gets the pin. It's like, I mean, I'm still trying to adjust to this. I know you mentioned it last time, where basically we don't get any finishes. Like, the finish is just, the match just ends. You know, the pin comes out of the blue. Yeah. And for me, Piper just hadn't done enough to Slater to put him out here. Like, I didn't believe, it really hurt the match. I didn't, like, it didn't, Slater had given Piper a lot more punishment, so why would Slater go down, you know, after just one diving fist? It didn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, this, this came after a restart, too, where uh, finally, after, you know, Piper ignoring Hart, he finally goes after him, uh, which allows Slater to gain the advantage, and then he hurls Piper over the top rope and then suplexes him back in the ring and pins him. Uh, but Piper had his foot on the ropes, uh, which, I, you know, usually when you see a match restart, you have another referee or somebody else to kind of come down to explain what had happened here. I guess Fargo just took Piper's word for it because he immediately restarts yeah. the match. And that's, like you said, we had kind of a out-of-the-blue finish where Hart and Fargo are arguing with each other. Piper sort of catches Slater coming off the ropes and then pins him with a, a big fist. It wasn't... Uh, again, the the Valentine match, I know you thought, had sort of an abrupt finish. Yeah. Uh, this, I think, was... It was definitely more abrupt this time um, and hurt the match. I was sort of fine with the Valentine finish. This did seem a little weird, so closely after the restart uh but i think this is going to be a recurring theme for us and it's kind of made me appreciate pat patterson a lot more uh watching these early early shows from 83 and 84 because 
so many matches to have crap finishes uh, on a lot of these shows, and it just makes like Pat- Patterson's famous for being a great finish guy, right? And yes, that's one thing those WF shows all have is I, I, well, I hesitate to say all of them, but is memorable finishes, you know, or where you can see that you know the match is going to end now, and it's kind of like a flourish at the end. Um, and for me, like very few of these matches have had that. Even um, end of race flare didn't really have, you know, a big. It was, you know, more of a mess with the ref involvement. Yeah, I, th- I think it may be more of a, a kind of finisher type deal, where with the WWL finishers are so important to where when somebody, you know, hits their finisher that been established, you anticipate that the match is either going to be over or you're going to have a really big dramatic kick out, whereas I know just thinking back to a lot of the NWA, WCW title changes even, you have a lot of kind of sunset flips, inside cradle type roll-ups that end big matches. Uh, I guess just a difference of style. There's also like on more than one occasion and uh, I think we'll see this a lot on the next show when we do uh, Starcade 84. The, the announcers don't seem to be in, like, they don't seem to know what's happening. And they're, they're as confused as we are. And that's something that, like, we'd never get on a Vince show. Like, you never get a point where, you know, Monsoon thinks it's one finish, but it's actually a different finish. But yet it seems to, seems to happen quite often during these, um, during these shows. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this this bullshit finish hurt the match a little bit for me because um, Piper gets the pin but because the match went 17 minutes, Slater retains the TV title so um, yeah, we get that finish that's kind of the um, dusty finish before the dusty finish right? before the dusty finish there was the the match has gone 17 minutes so yeah this seems to, I'm sure as we go on through the shows with the television title We'll have a bevy of either matches of this type where the uh, person goes over, but not in the amount of time the belt is on the line. Or when we get towards the 90s, I know there's a lot of 15-minute draws and what have you uh, when dealing with the television title. Okay, so I mean that was a decent that was a decent match, I'd say. Yeah, I, I I thought it was good. I actually enjoyed that. I would I would say that was good. Good match. And Piper's gone now, right? I, I think he, shortly after, not long after this, well, this was before Starcade. Yeah, right? yes. Um, so shortly after Starcade is when he uh, makes the jump. And, uh, yeah, Vince was, um, I, in fact, I've been reading the 1984 uh, Wrestling uh, Observers, and it's, mm-hmm. it's quite interesting to see Meltzer document, you know, Vince's acquisition of talent over this time. And he talks about, you know, he he gets Hogan, he gets Piper, and then like he goes around all the different territories, taking various different stars. And it's quite interesting to see him speculate to see how, um, you know, obviously he didn't know at that point that it was, you know, that he was going to take over. So they were trying to like size up how all the different territories were going to um, were going to compete and what was going to happen, you know. And he he kind of like goes through different towns. He he basically says that all the all the towns that Vince takes um, are towns that were kind of dead already. Like, you know, they were there for the taking and that he hadn't actually gone head-to-head with anyone with a popular promotion um, 
you know, so he mentions like uh, like Dallas, for example. You know, those fans were loyal to the Von Erichs, so there was no chance of Vince coming in to take that. That was uh, it. Was just interesting to to see what the uh, kind of perception was there in 1984 from the from the smart fans. So we we already at our main event. It's um, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood versus Canodal and Slaughter in a cage, and we get the Rocky music to start. Yeah, <laughs> for the for the heels. <laughs> so um, I would assume. Yeah, we we get we don't get the light show. I don't think, but we do we do get a long playing of the Rocky music. Um, and Steamboat does something really interesting here. He kind of tight ropes walks on the top rope. Did, did, did you see him do that? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, and that was when Kernertle and Slaughter were coming out. He does sort of, I don't know if that was showcasing his agility, testing the ropes, or quite what was going on there, but that was kind of interesting. And the ref here is Sandy Scott. Yeah. Who, who's uh, who, a former wrestler. And he, uh, we'll get, maybe get into this a little bit more in the ending, but, uh, as anybody that listened to the Starcade 83 show knows, I had a pretty deep hatred of Gene Konitsky in that match. And while Sandy Scott, I don't think, did as terrible a job as Konitsky did in that match, I certainly did not think he did a very good job here and had some problems with the way he officiated this match as well. Yeah, well, maybe maybe after Starcade '84 we can do a um, we can do a kind of bottom three guest refs thing because uh, we have a uh, smoking Joe Fraser to look forward to as well. Oh my <laughs> gosh, there's some pretty steep competition in these early shows with the. And I, I, I guess I just don't understand sort of why they did this again with here with Sandy Scott and with Konitsky. I mean, they sort of presented as you've got to have the old style wrestler to come in to enforce the rules. But in a cage match, you know, where they emphasize there's no disqualification it just seems like we'll let the wrestlers go at it and do their thing instead of trying to hold them back. So I did a little bit of reading about Sandy Scott just to see, you know, what his deal was. And he's kind of like the um, Crockett version of Arlen Scarland. Like he was kind of a back office guy. He'd been around for a long time. Um, and his brother is actually George Scott, the right. legendary booker, um, and who was probably with Vince at this time. He would have been, I think, up until '84. George Scott is there, um, so obviously they they wheeled him out to to ref this match. Um, there's an interesting stipulation here that if Steamboat and Youngblood lose, they can never tag again. Yeah, that was uh, for a relatively young uh, babyface team. That seemed like sort of a, a kind of bizarre stipulation but it's sort of the way the match is presented and the way they wrestle the match they really sort of got over the magnitude of that they were already four-time champs at this point which is uh yeah i mean jay youngblood i thought i mean he obviously uh i think died prematurely right um but yes he, he could have been a big like looking at look at him looking at him in this match in the last match he could have been a big star I guess he could have been and I, well th- there's a there's an argument to say that he'd already achieved 
some level of stardom, being a four-time NWH tag champ, right? Yeah, I guess Steamboat was 30 years old uh, when this match happened, which I would have thought he'd have been uh, younger than that, but um, I just looked it up, and he was 30, and Youngblood was 28, so... They, they 27, 28, he was born in 1955, so they were, uh, you know, not fresh baby faces. They'd been established and been in the business uh, for a while it, on Jay Youngblood. It says his debut was 1975. I mean, it, I guess most wrestlers peak when they're, I mean, in, in real sports, as it were. Um, most people peak when they're kind of, you know, like a, a soccer player or a footballer peaks when they're 26, 27, 28. That's their kind of peak time. But in wrestling, because of politics and whatnot, usually guys don't peak until they're more like 35. You know, they don't get their big main event run um, until they've been around for at least 15 years, something like that. Um, right. So even though Steamboat's 30, he's still kind of considered quite a young guy, bizarrely. Um so, yeah, there's a very odd moment at the start of this match where Don Canodal kind of fold, fondles the belt and looks at it lovingly. Yeah. <laughs> um, he also had a homemade t-shirt, which was, I thought, a nice touch. And uh, Coddle seems a lot more alive with David around. I mean, it, uh, Crockett was such a mark for the product that it, it, his enthusiasm must have been infectious. Like you couldn't, I don't think Coddle could help but be more energized with, with him around. Yeah, and I actually think on the Starcade shows he's really missed Crockett. Like hearing him here, um, this feels like a massively a bigger deal uh, because he's around. Yeah, I know in the early going, uh, David talks about the uh, cage match and how every wrestler hates wrestling a cage match, and I thought that was really great and getting over the psychology that was being presented. Uh, because I guess we can go ahead and start talking about the structure of the match. The first 15 minutes of this match is essentially Steamboat and Youngblood working over Kernertle, which I, I know this match has a huge reputation and a lot of people that I respect uh, on the internet yeah. wrestling community really present this as one of the true classics and I, I know I've watched this match once before and really enjoyed it. Uh, but here I, I did sort of have a problem with this first 15 minutes. I, I didn't think it was uh, bad necessarily, but I did think, one, that both Steamboat and Youngblood were too technical yeah. um, in their offense as far as we had essentially a headlock and a chin lock and then every once in a while they do some flashy moves with a steamboat with a big chop off the top rope or young blood with a uh, suplex or, or drop kick or whatnot but then they'd go right back to the headlock and you, you do sort of i know i was critical of that in the flare race cage match because i thought they didn't emphasize the cage that was not the case here because in the first 30 seconds of the match, you can really tell that Kernertle and Slaughter's strategy is going to be to ram either Youngblood or Steamboat into the cage. Yeah, uh, but it, it did seem after a while, up to the 10, 11, 12 minute mark, I was kind of ready 
for them to take over on offense because we'd seen just Steamboat and Youngblood dominate up to this time, and it seemed like really too long of a hill in peril segment. I, I share that frustration, um, and I mean, I, Youngblood and Steamboat's offense basically consists of headlock take headlock takedown, headlock, um, maybe a chop, but basically they go back to the headlock, and I've got written here this is a this is a 15 minute headlock. Uh, it's a good yeah. headlock, but it's still a headlock. Um, and there's something I don't really understand about the heel in peril segment. It doesn't make any sense to me because you can't really hot tag to a heel. Um, and it's something that I mean, we'll, we'll we'll see it whenever we see the the Russians, for example, where pretty much every match has um, Ivan Koloff. Um, getting beat down by the faces until he gets a hot tag to Nikita, who comes and um, comes and dominates. And here they were doing that with uh, with Slaughter. Um, it just didn't make like what's the what's the idea? What is the basic kind of booking idea of having a heel in a heel in peril? Yeah, it does seem, I, I can understand sort of a shine segment in the beginning, and I enjoy that for a few minutes, but uh, in referencing the 1994 yearbook again, there's a Heavenly Bodies Rock and Roll Express Iron Man match on that set, uh, and that heel in peril segment, kind of similar to this one, is, you know, upwards of 10 minutes long. And it just really seems too drawn out, and you can't sustain the interest and the heat because you're not getting much of a story created so far. And there's one other thing that I don't understand, because obviously, I mean, um, Knodal can't catch a break here in this first 15 minutes. Any attempt at a comeback or anything that he does is, you know, um, cut short. He get he gets his neck cranked, basically, whenever he tries right. to do anything. Um, but... Uh, they make a point of saying that anything goes in this match. It's a case right. match. You can't be DQ'd. But yet, the referee, uh, Sandy Scott, very officiously makes sure that Slaughter doesn't tag, doesn't get, like, I don't really understand the point of an anything goes cage match where there's no DQs, but yet you still have to tag in and tag out. I mean, that makes no sense to me at all. Yeah, I seem to remember this kind of being just a way that NWA sort of structures their cage matches. Um, and I know the Anderson Rock and Roll Express cage match from Starcade is sort of presented in a similar manner where you have, uh, two, one member of each team just standing on the ropes, kind of waiting on the tag on the apron. And, uh, I, I mean, I, I personally don't like it. I think as much as you can criticize the WWF style cage match for the escape rules, I think this is a flaw in their match because if you do want to present something as everything goes and in this match, the stakes were so high, why not just let Slaughter, you know, come in and save his teammate? But if, I mean, if I was Slaughter, I'd be saying to Sandy Scott, well, listen, Maggot, okay, what are you, what are you going to do? Disqualify me? Right. No, I mean, it like, seems like he could just punch Sandy Scott and just go do basically whatever he wanted. So, so anyway, I, I've got a note here that we uh, that we have some great chops from Steamer um, around the time where the, the match starts heating up. Um, and uh, finally, uh, we get a back suplex from Canodal and he gets a blind tag into Slaughter. Slaughter comes in and almost immediately starts... <laughs> immediately. 
immediately starts getting beaten up by Jay Youngblood. So um, the heels just can't get any offense at all in this match. Oh. And then Slaughter did take some uh, great bumps. I thought that was kind of an interesting spot where, yeah, Slaughter does get essentially a hot tag after 13 minutes of Kernertle being dominated. Comes in, immediately gets thrown into the cage, which this is the first time anybody's been uh, thrown into the cage so far in the match and takes uh, a great bump off of that. And then... uh back to the headlock, this time on Slaughter, and I've just got a note here saying, now you have another heel in peril section, and it just happens way too soon. Yeah. I mean, Slaughter comes in, and almost immediately is on the back foot, and uh, immediately now he's in trouble. So it's like, we've had 15 minutes plus now of all faces being on offense, and now the faces are back, like, heels have got nothing so far. I mean, they're, they're really being, uh, like, a uh, Steamboat and Youngblood are double-teaming Slaughter. They, they keep on headlocking him. And then finally, Slaughter gets a moment where he rams Youngblood into the uh, into the cage. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, we we still have the storyline of Slaughter and Kernertle really going for the big, the big shot or the home run, so to speak. Uh, whereas both Steamboat and Youngblood are kind of grinding it out, breaking them down piece by piece and wrestling them but it, it really did feel like uh, in my case at least that the match turned around significantly once Slaughter uh, rammed Youngblood into the cage Yeah, th- and really from then on this this match uh, does heat up a little bit and I should yeah. mention that Don Knodel uh, by this point is just an absolute bloody, bloody mess like he just looks done like he's you know he looks like he's been through a war. By this yeah, he, he does a great job, uh, and and really all of them doing the end layers, but, you know, Kernertle did get worked over for 13 minutes, even though it wasn't the most exciting uh, move set in the world and a lot of headlocks and whatnot, but he does do a lot of staggering, a kind of a lot of uh, falling down and whatnot, and that that is nice to see because I do think too often somebody will get worked over for an extended amount of time, go outside on the ring apron, and then one minute later, you know, it's come flying in, running the ring ropes and what have you. Yeah, I agree with. That. I I hate to see that as well. Um, but yeah, th- th- this was a good selling job in general. Bike. This is probably the match of Canodal's life, I'd imagine. Um, and then we get a pretty good hit face in peril section uh, where, where Youngblood eats a stun gun, fist drop, a neck breaker, and Slaughter gets the Cobra Clutch on. Um, but then he gets hit into the cage and Steamboat gets a hot tag. Yeah, and Slaughter did a really obvious blade job when he got rammed into the cage. Uh, it was <laughs> again, I don't know how much they thought was being filmed or what have you, but this was one of the more obvious blade jobs you'll see, where he just took his hand and slided it right across his forehead as he was going to the mat. And by this point, all four guys uh, have got the crimson mask. All four right. Guys are um, and how many times have you seen Steamboat uh, blade before, because that was one thing I made a note on. They showed a uh, a close up of him bleeding, and I I could not think right offhand of any time I've ever seen him blade 
before this. That's that's a good point, actually. Especially, you're right. I can't think of any matches where Steamboat. I just thought that was striking. I mean, it, yeah. he he had a pretty. I mean, you know, Canerl. They also do a close up of him, and he is a mess. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> absolutely five alarm job. Uh, he did, and Slaughter has always been, I think, a, a really good leader. Yeah. As far as I, I can remember, in like the Hogan matches and whatnot, uh, and here he looked fine. But Steamboat, I mean, you know, it wasn't it. The blood looked good uh, on Steamboat and was flowing, and I just thought right offhand, I was like, "Well, that's interesting," because I cannot think of another time where he did blade. Well, I guess a lot of Steamboat's matches are kind of technical affairs, aren't they? Uh, a lot of the yeah, yeah, that was one thing I was wanting to see here is how much fire he showed because I I know that is a criticism that I validate as far as the Randy Savage Steamboat matches. You have essentially this blood feud and then they go in and have a catch-as-catch-can wrestling match at WrestleMania 3. Uh, so that was one thing that I thought in the first part of the match Steamboat sort of didn't do great at as far as showing some fire. Um, but in the second mat- part of the match, I thought he was really good at just stiff chops uh, and kind of going toe-to-toe with Slaughter and Canertle and then throwing them into the cage. His chops, I have to say, are probably among like among the best chops ever. Yeah, they look brutal. They They really laid it in in this match as far as both the chops and the strikes. Real and uh, when they threw each other into the cage, there was a lot of just, I mean, they would sort of launch themselves at the cage. So uh, around this time, there was a couple of really cool spots. There was one where um, Steamboat was kind of closing in for the kill on Canodal, and Slaughter, like, dives to save him. Yes, that was, uh, that was amazing. Uh, Steamboat sort of, yeah, he was going in to, I guess, a a flying press against the cage or what have you for Knurdle. And Slaughter essentially tackled Knurdle to where Steamboat just dived headfirst into the cage. And it looked great. I mean, it it was just a split second uh, either way, and it would have looked really bad. But the way they did that, it looked amazing. Um, And Steamboat really just took the cage face first. And there's an amazing setting job from Steamboat here where he, he hits the cage and then basically does that 360 over where he, he kind of lands on his head and does, you know, com- complete 360. Um, you know, I mean... You, you yeah, he flips essentially completely over to where... I think that was off a clothesline, wasn't it? Or was it off of this? I, I, I've got it from the cage here, but... Okay, I know there was a clothesline spot, too, where, you know, he'll fall, and if you think about when somebody takes a bump off the clothesline, they take it right on their back, but Steamboat, he'll flip all the way over to where he ends up on his stomach. Yeah, I, I, love, that. I love those sort of bumps. I mean, um, uh, the classic one is uh, you, you, DBRC's got a great bump that he takes like that, where he flips yeah. right over. But uh, this was an awesome one. From yeah, there was some really uh, stiff clotheslines thrown out between Slaughter and Canerdo also in this match. So we get a double power slam, and then yes. um, really unexpectedly we get a genuine, honest-to-God, holy shit moment. Because <laughs> Slaughter goes 
on the top of the cage. <laughs> and I've just got, oh my god, me Mega Bump. Because he, he dives completely from the top of the cage. And he essentially does a belly flop on the onto nowhere. Like Yeah, this, I think this may be one of the best spots I've ever seen as far as the way it looked. Uh, because Steamboat escaped as great as Slaughter, you know, barely saving Knurdle was timing wise. This was just as good as Steamboat. I mean, he moved one second early enough to miss Slaughter, uh, who just, you know, really sold it all the way on the way down. You did not see any kind of landing on the feet or sort of bracing for a bump from Slaughter. He just took this, oh. you know, like he was hitting it. And David Crockett uh, with this bump was absolutely amazing where, you know, Slaughter starts getting on top of the ropes and David, you know, goes no. And then he climbs up to the top of the cage and we get a, you know, a little more anxious no. And then as soon as Slaughter dies off the cage, David just lets it fly yelling, you know, as high as he can. No at the top of his lungs. He's going to get on the fence. No! No! Slaughter now trying to get up on top of the fence, David. No! And Steamboat just managed to roll away in the nick of time. David, I would have been from about 10 feet high in the air. He would have crushed him with all that yes, weight. Yes, he would have. And they're all a mess. Oh, which was... Just amazing. It, this was one of my favorite spots I've ever seen in a match. Yeah, and completely unexpected. I just didn't see that coming. And, you know, people talk about that uh, uh, snooker spot, but uh, yeah. it was just like, wow. And um, I tell you what, if Slaughter hit that, Steamboat was dead right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was... I, I, you have to hand it to Slaughter because, again, this was... He full-fledged you know, dove off of that cage. There was no bracing. There was no, I mean, it, if you watch, it looks like he's going to hit it itself at the very last second. Someone should show this to a Jeff Hardy fan, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it, it was It was incredible. So now um, Jay Youngblood's on fire all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. He hits a bunch of chops, a double uh, a suplex. Uh, we get double chops on Canodal. Um, and then we get that spot from Starcade again, where we get a gorilla press, Steamboat gorilla presses uh, Youngblood onto Slaughter. Right, and and uh, the announcer said that is how they won the tag title. So I guess this was essentially their finishing move, yeah. uh, which I, I didn't know. I've not seen very much of Steamboat and Youngblood as a as a team, but uh, that was something that I caught that they mentioned it. And now um, the faces are really dominant now. They, there's a double catapult into the cage. It was a pretty cool spot. Um, yeah, Slaughter also took a, a bump too where he kind of went backwards into the cage. Um, I, I thought Slaughter was really amazing in this match and really showed how you know great he was as sort of a, a bigger heel but somebody that could really, you know, bump with the best of them, take yeah. some big bumps uh, and dives and what have you. And I actually think Slaughter may be the king of the gimmick match of this at the, of this kind of time frame. I mean, there's obviously the legendary match with Iron Sheik. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that boot camp match is incredible. And, 
uh, he was really incredible in this match also. I'm looking forward to seeing more Slaughter on the AWA sound. Yes, me too. Me too. Um, so then Youngbird gets uh, the Cobra Clutch on Canodal, which is a little mm. bit which is a little bit cheeky. Um, <laughs> and the, rather than count the pin, the ref pushes Sarge, which I didn't really understand. Yeah, we had a kind of Cobra Clutch sleeper combo that was put on, and then uh, Slaughter was let go of by Steamboat, and he uh, loaded his elbow pad to deliver the clothesline. Um, but Sandy Scott was out of position; uh, he kind of got knocked over, and then uh, and so Slaughter hits it and puts Kernardle on top of Youngblood. Uh, but then Scott sends Slaughter back to the corner, which was really frustrating because, again, it's it's a no-DQ match. So, so what if he's in the ring? You know, count the pinfall. But while he's doing that, Youngblood, uh, I mean, uh, Steamboat replaces Youngblood and puts him on top of Canertle. So, basically, you have two lifeless people pinning each other. Yeah. Uh, and that, and then Scott turns around and counts the one, two, three, and... Steamboat and Youngblood win the tag titles. I thought that was sort of a cheapened finish in some way. So, so, yeah, I mean, the finish wasn't great, but it was probably better than most finishes that we've seen so far. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would just love to have seen something maybe necessarily once Slaughter dove off the top rope. Uh, you know, and he was really wounded there and sold it where he was wounded, where he was staggering around and Kernertle was in trouble and was getting pinned and he couldn't even break up the pins because he had no energy. I don't like to see something where Steamboat got the hot tag right after the missed dive. Uh, Youngblood takes care of Kernertle and then they do some type of, you know, whether they want to do their power slam on top of Slaughter or dive off the top rope or what have you, just something along that line. Uh, because it did seem like Slaughter was on the way out here. So, you know, I don't know why they couldn't have had him lose cleanly now, for I'm, once. I'm a little bit confused about the timeline with Slaughter because he seemed to have been working for AWA around this time. And for Vince, I don't really understand, like, he must have been, transitions from Slaughter from company to company must have been, either he was working for both at the same time, or it must have been like bang, bang, bang. Because, um, I mean, isn't that Boot Camp Mansion in 1983 as well? Or is it in 82? I think it's uh, 84, I thought. Maybe it is 83, I'm not positive but yeah it does seem like he was bouncing around a good bit between the three major companies at this time he, he was definitely working for vince um in the early 80s like def, def, like there's definitely shows like he was around when backland was around um without doubt and i think he goes i mean he goes from wf to awa uh, around the time of the GI Joe thing, so I'm just try- I'm just trying to work out when he was, like when he was working for Crockett. I, I guess it- I guess he must have gone from WF to Crockett back to WF. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure, but this did I mean this did seem in a lot of ways like a farewell. Um, so that's why I would have liked to seen him kind of take the pinfall. Uh, for instance, we did see Kernardle give that interview. At a Starcade eighty three. 
Yeah, but, uh, Slaughter was gone by the time of uh, Starcade. Right. Um, so th- this has obviously got a legendary rep as a match. You know, it's been talked about for like well, decades now as being a you know a great match that people hold up. Um, and I mean, obviously, on any kind of cage matches comp, this would be on there, right? You, you, you'd have yes. to, you'd have to yes. include it. Um, but I wonder whether it is the kind of all-time classic that it's made out to be. Um, I think, I mean, the first 15 minutes do hurt it somewhat for me. Um, I mean, it is like it is a 15-minute headlock there, and it. The question is, does the all of the stuff that happens after that um, do enough to, you know, allow us to forgive that? slow opening yeah I would I mean for instance in what we've seen so far I would put this behind the Valentine Piper doll collar match uh, for me personally Um, when I saw this the first time I think I liked it more Uh, I I mean to be honest I think Steamboat is a lot to uh, deal with that as far as uh, I, I just want to say, I think Steamboat is a great wrestler and had a yeah. great career, but Steamboat is someone that I would have thought when I first started getting onto wrestling communities and what have you that I, I know there was a lot of greatest of all time uh, kind of hype thrown his way and yeah. stuff like that is where I've watched more footage I would back down from that and where I wouldn't even say he is a contender for the greatest wrestler of all time in my book. And here, you know, the first 15 minutes, while I could understand the story they were telling, I thought it was too slow. Uh, the Hill in peril segment was too drawn out and that really detracted it from being a, uh, a truly classic match in the upper echelon of the other NWA classics. Yeah. And it, it- I mean, we'll obviously be seeing a lot more uh, Steamboat, um, but it's interesting to to hear you say that because he was one guy who had a very poor showing on the uh, on the All Japan set. There, I mean, I think he, I think he probably had maybe um, three or four matches in the bottom five for most people. Like, uh, and, and I'm not saying they're all his fault, but I'd like I've seen probably as many bad Steamboat matches as I've seen good ones. Yeah, that's that's uh, a lot of the All Japan footage was what I was basing that on, uh, just going in uh, through, once again, the 1994 yearbook. I mean, he had some really uh, good performances as far as with Steve Austin and the uh, kind of curtain call matches with Flair. Uh, but then he also had some disappointing ones, for instance, him and Austin had a showcase match at Bash at the Beach that was... Uh, really not very good at all, and uh, I blame Steamboat for a lot of that. And, and I think I, I just think a lot of that has to deal with my taste in wrestling, where I've kind of moved on from he does really impressive arm drags and whatnot, and I want I want a little more fire out of my wrestlers. Uh, but yeah, that will be interesting as we go along, just to see you know in the eighties. NWA stuff, how Steamboat looks in that. He doesn't have, I mean, I am, uh, I'm not going to say I'm a, I'm a guy for moves, but um, 
I like to see at least a variety of offense. And for me, apart from his chops and his arm drags and his headlock takedown, Steamboat doesn't actually do a lot when it comes to. Obviously, he's you know one of the best sellers ever, but he doesn't actually have that many kind of moves that he does. Um, I, I mean, it does make a lot of his offense a little bit samey, you know. And right. it the kind of heel and peril segment for me would have been a lot easier to take if they'd done more stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'd, again, it'll be very interesting. To see, like, for instance, the Flair Steamboat 89 series I've not seen in a while. And I know those matches, especially the Clash matches, is dominated by Headlock because it's a 55-minute match. And I do know there was a lot of kind of action going on with that where people were moving around, a lot of moving parts. Uh, Here, I would say the Headlock, you know, it wasn't them just sort of sitting on the mat, but I did think it did detract from the match because it did seem like they were just kind of resulting back to this basic hold in such an important match and it seemed like sort of an odd strategy that you know they did show more success when they started slamming Kernertle and Slaughter into the cage and giving more intensified chops and what have you. I, I mean I guess you could justify it by saying that these guys are so wholesome they're so goody two shoes that you know they that's what they know how to do that they're going to like even in a in a heated bud feud cage match they're going to be going to the amateur style and doing what they've learned how to do because you know that's how good they are they're not rule breakers <laughs> it's not in their dna to <laughs> use the cage except right i mean that's the only way i can think of justifying it yeah, I, I understand that strategy, and I, I can see how that would work for some people. I would just say me personally, um, it you know, when you're talking, and that's to take nothing away from this match. I would classify this match as great uh, if they, you know, when we get to the Death Valley Driver 80s Crockett project, I would I could see this match going, you know, relatively high. It's just I can see some people thinking this match is a, possible number one contender and I, I don't see that at all I, I would actually be surprised if this would be in my top 10 or 15 yeah I mean it I'd probably if I was forced to give a star rating go four and a half and I four and a half mainly because of that slaughter bump because I just can't I still can't quite believe it happened yeah I mean the timing was amazing um, and they t- they told a clear, concise story. So, I mean, I know in the Flair race story, uh, m- in that match, the story was kind of convoluted. Race didn't seem at all interested sometimes. They would sort of transition between wrestling, uh, working hold for hold, and driving each other into the cage. Here you had two clear paths where, you know, one team was going to wrestle to the victory, one team was going to ram uh, Steamboat and Youngblood into the cage for the victory and kind of will their way. Uh, so they did tell a great story. And the second half I thought was, you know, amazing. The final 20 minutes. I just, I, I do think if you would have chopped the first portion in half and had a little better finish, it would have been more satisfactory for me. Yeah. So, so would you go along with my four and a half star rating? Or yeah, if I had to give a star rating, I would say four and a half. I mean, again, great, great, great match. It's just, 
you know, as far as being one of the best matches of the 80s, I wouldn't go that far. It is rare to see all four guys so messy and bloody, though. I will say that. Especially yes, yes it, did, it did sort of seem like kind of a War Games before War Games situation where, you know, everybody looked worse for wear at the end of the match. So, so just um, finishing up then, um, before, we, before we do the kind of uh, awards, um, there was a Flair versus Valentine match when this card yeah. didn't make it. Yeah. A 60 minute time limit draw. Which, that seems interesting, that they would do that. Um, I guess that went on before cage match. This was the main event, right? They, they yes, did. yes, yes. This, I, I assume they did the thing where they had Flair Valentine, and you know Miller talks about how there'll be two intermissions. So I assume after that match they took the second intermission to set up the cage and then had this match. And uh, fair play to the crowds. They're, they're not dead after that 60-minute uh, match. So, yeah, yeah, I'd be interested to see. I know Valentine is somebody... Uh, I know I said in the past podcast I, I ranked him as my MVP, and I, th- I thought he was great in the Piper match, and really the only performance I could find comparable to his in that match was when he faced Bob Backlund in a 60-minute draw. Uh, from 1979. I don't know if you ever seen that match, but that's a, that's a great 60-minute draw. Uh, so I would have loved to have seen what him and Flair would have done here, especially since Flair has some history with John Valentine. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, I guess the, it wasn't taped. Well, you know, Valentine, it takes him at least 15 minutes to get going. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed it does, Gorilla. <laughs> uh, all right, so... We're saying MVP for the show. Um, obviously, match of the night is obvious. It, it's the main yeah. event. Um, and I'm saying the M- M- MVP is probably Slaughter, right? I mean, he just does so much in this match. Yeah, I would give Slaughter the edge. I mean, a, a kind of honorable mention to Kernertle, because like you said, I, don't, I, don't, I doubt he's ever had a match near as good as this one. Um, and he sort of rose to the occasion. I would say he was probably the fourth member uh, in the matchup there, but uh, he he did a really good job. You know, it, even though I disagreed with sort of the story they were going with, he did take a good beating the first 15 minutes of the match, but Slaughter was incredible. Uh, I, one thing that I didn't mention during the match, but they do a kind of close-up shot of Slaughter on the apron while Kinnerdle was beat on, and he has just this look of demeanor, and David, you know, on cue talks about how he's strategizing what he's going to do when he gets in there. And that was just so appropriate. And so, I mean, he was just great at bumping, uh, great offense when he dished it out. And I thought he was really great in that match. Given that we're not going to see Slaughter again, I don't think. I don't think we see Slaughter again. Um, in all yeah, the- I thought he, period, right? Yeah. Never. I think this is good for him, unless we do any AWA stuff. Um, right. These pods, but um, as far as NWA, this is a, this is it for him. Um, I will mention that his face is quite unique. I mean, he's got the biggest chin. Like, if if <laughs> if, if, if if you got a cartoonist to draw a sergeant from the army, they'd come up with Slaughter's face. Like he is, uh, he is quite. He's got quite interesting uh, facial features, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he 
he's got a great look and it's it's you know not I don't want to turn these podcasts into a harping of the current times because I, I know why you don't keep up with current wrestling I actually do and I do find a lot of good still in the current product but I mean Slaughter is somebody that you just know would not get a second look today with his figure and his yeah. face and you know even in this match he had sort of a receding hairline uh, and I mean and he was excellent in this match. In 83, I mean, Slaughter probably legit top three in the country, top three in the world. In yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be tough. I, I can't think of too many. When you when you put in the backline title defenses, uh, this match, and then, you know, the boot camp match, which has to be in sort of that two to three year window uh, without seeing some of the AWA stuff that we've got coming up. Um, he he's definitely a top top tier contender yeah, because I, those are some of the best matches. I don't just mean from like a like a you know matches point of view. I I mean in terms of like being a star and a draw as well. I mean yeah, absolutely. I mean here he drew uh, the boot camp match. He drew his his matches with Backlund. Uh, I've seen one from the Spectrum, one from MSG. They were both very heated and contested. Uh, so yeah, I, I can't absolutely. think of too many people who would have been ahead of him in '83. Maybe Hogan, um, maybe Flair, maybe, maybe maybe Dusty. I mean, he's definitely top five. Absolutely, absolutely, and so versatile. I mean, just think about all the different places he went and excelled at. I mean, really, with different opponents. I mean, Iron Sheik and Steamboat and. Uh, Bob Backlund are pretty pretty three different sides of the spectrum. Yeah, and he to have three great matches and with equally great as a face or a heel as well. Abs- absolutely, yeah. Slaughter's awesome. So, we how about our worst person on the night? Uh, that that could be pretty tough. I I would say maybe Johnny Weaver. <laughs> I don't know. I was I like I said I I really thought he was pretty good. In the match we saw from Starcade, which that wasn't much either, but you know he showed some decent moves and some stuff. I, I might actually say Gene Anderson. It's just I didn't know how far removed he was here. But yeah, Johnny Weaver. After seeing that uh, in November when they announced this matchup, and you know Jim Nelson, I've seen him have some decent matches every once in a while. I, I thought this might be a pretty you know, decent to good little tag match in the middle of the card, and that was not there, and Weaver really brought nothing to the table. I'm going to give that to Sandy Scott. (laughs) Sandy's a good contender. Uh, I I, I think in retrospect, watching Konitsky's performance uh, actually helped Sandy here because I was not near as appalled, but uh, he, he was... It, it, especially at the ending. I mean, I can understand and sometimes trying to create a sense of control in the early going of the match, but, I mean, all four guys have been in the ring for such an extended point of time for him to decide right then and there that Slaughter had to, you know, leave the ring and go on the apron was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, and uh, I, just before we go, I'm going to have to give one last honourable mention to uh, David Crockett, because honestly, I don't think we're going to, unless he crops up on some clashes, I don't think we're going to see him again. Yeah, and, and like, I, I mean, his his 
call of the Youngblood Steamboat Canardal Slaughter match. I mean, Coddle did a great job calling the action, being straight, getting over the story. Uh, but Crockett added the enthusiasm. Uh, just, just a great color job. I mean, he he literally did bring a lot of color to that match and really livened it up. Yeah, and he is just a like. There's no other way to describe it, but he's a total lunatic. Like he's just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's enthusiastic, but I I do think there's sort of a fine line between enthusiastic and annoying, yeah. and and he really towed that line great here. I mean, he, he did sound like a fan, a very educated fan in the main event, uh, but it wasn't just, you don't get a sense of just an annoying, you know, shill for the company. I mean, he, he really does seem like he's having the time of his life watching this match. And this is going to sound like a knock on Soli, but I, I really think Coddle is a lot better without him. Like, even, even in the early matches where he was on his own. He, he, yeah, he, he, I, he I think better. Coddle just plays well off of someone. Um, I mean, I know here with David, with the Smoky Mountain footage I've seen playing off of Dutch Mantel, and with Soli, it just, with both of them sort of calling it straight, and none of them really being a designated color person, per se, uh, it kind of muddles both of their performances. Yeah, you're right. And we'll, we'll, we'll that will be a continuing theme on the next show, as we'll <laughs> As we'll say, well, 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 thanks a lot, um, Chad, for the, yet again. And, um, yeah, we'll see you soon for Starkid 84. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>